0: Hey guys, welcome back. BDC care here. We're back with season nine, episode 21 of our weekly Q and a videos slash podcast. I guess I should just say episode. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, what is it? It's not a video. It's not a podcast. It's just content.
1: We are the king of of, of
0: all media. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just Um, media. And so if you're on YouTube links in the description to get this on a lot of different podcasting platforms. And if you're on a podcasting platform right now, good for you. Uh, congratulations.
1: That was a riff on Howard Stern, in case nobody noticed. Because he used to call himself king of all media, but he basically did the same shtick across all media. So mm-hmm. he had his radio show, so he was highly ranked in that. He made a movie about his life getting onto radio. Yeah. That was highly ranked, so he was called himself the king of movies for that. And then he took the radio show and televised it and broadcast that over TV, so then that was him. <laughs> uh, triple threat a tv star yeah basically yeah. basically repurposing the same content which is what we're doing
0: so there we go uh our first question this week comes from fab robin fab robin for who was a source possible to know
1: all our questions and take a uh, conversational takeoff points last yeah
0: week. There, there's no way to know how it's pronounced it's impossible to find out there'd be no <laughs> way for us to access that information even if If it is out there, if such a thing exists as a correct way of pronouncing a name. Uh, And they say, I was surprised to hear you guys bring up that research on self-fulfilling prophecy. Is one of you a psychology major in university? I'm always impressed by how wide your range of knowledge is. And so to answer that question very easily and simply, yes, one of us is a psychology major in university. Mm -hmm. uh, And the second piece of information is me. Um <laughs> it's me and so we can talk a little bit about this so to me amario one of the interesting things right um is you go into programs uh to learn about that topic right right and i think in general you expect to come out knowing more than you went in with right. and i think sometimes i actually even do uh the listeners of this channel a bit of a disservice when i talk about uh psychology research because When I, one of my biggest takeaways from the psychology research that I've done, my psychology undergraduate, uh, and this, I need to preface this to say that I'm not anti-science at all, but it's how garbage a lot of research is, Uh, and how really hard it is to take research and make big claims with it. Okay, so sorry, are you talking about research general research you're talking about specifically psychology research i'm talking about so my field is in psychology right, right my sort right, of main right. wheelhouse so i'm talking about psychology research but the one of the things that i learned so um one big thing in psychology specifically was something called the replication crisis right right which is this idea that um people went back and they tried to copy studies exactly right, right. and see how the results shook out and they found that a lot of studies didn't replicate. And there's a bunch of reasons for it. There's a there's a big explanation, and a lot of it's very technical. So I think a lot of it's not worth getting into. But basically, um, there is this number called the alpha, or the p-value. And it tends to be set to 0.05.
1: So that p-value, 0.05, is really like a representation percentage. Yeah. So there's a 5% or 1 in 20 chance that the differences you're seeing as a result of your intervention in that sample size that you picked is due to random chance and not because
0: there's actually a real difference when you make that intervention. Close, but that's not even exactly it. All right. So that's one of the things is that the vast majority of people, including psychologists and including psychology researchers, kind of slightly misunderstand what that even means. Mm -hmm. And that is if... So you, when you are collecting your data, right you're usually finding some point of comparison. You're usually saying we expect this right. and we're we're getting something different. So maybe you expect like, you know, men and women to score the same on a test, and then you see right. that they have a difference in score. And so what a a null hypothesis mm-hmm. is basically what you would expect if there's nothing interesting going on underneath the hood if it's basically business as usual so in all well, hypothesis so maybe it's the way we're
1: using intervention because what you're describing is a case where it's not so much that it's intervention it's one descriptor yeah it's like one thing that it makes no difference and but, that when there's an observed difference it's it's just a, a variation of normal yeah so the null hypothesis is still true
0: but so that's the when the p-value is set to 0.05 what yeah. that actually is is if you assume that the null hypothesis is true yeah, what's the chance that you would get a result that's this far ah, off the null hypothesis? And that actually matters a lot. Right. And so there's a lot of things. Again, I like I don't want to make this a really sort of dry um, psychology education thing, but they found that a significant percentage of uh, researchers, uh, statistics professors, uh, psychology professors mm-hmm. would actually believe one or more incorrect things about what uh, the p value actually meant. Uh, That the vast majority of people, for example, didn't um, use the correct statistical techniques and tools, uh, because a lot of them have things that need to be true. They have prerequisites for you to be able to apply that statistical technique, Mm -hmm. and a lot of times those are violated. And again, I don't want to get into it, I don't want to be super technical. Uh, They analyzed a bunch of papers, and there's a lot of math that you can't check without the raw data, but there are some... Um, pieces of math where there's enough information in the paper right. that you can right. confirm uh, if something is done right and they found that in something like 80% of papers there's at least one mistake right. just in the numbers that you could actually verify without even having in access to data. the raw data right, right. so and none of this is to say that it's all bad that it's all bunk right but they, there's been a lot of stuff to throw doubt and again, this is within psychology, but the, you know, textbooks and papers and discussions on it that I read, right? We're talking about how a lot of other fields have very similar methodology with their research, and how psychology is one of the places in which there tends to be a lot less vested interest and external pressure uh, to not... Um, go back and critique something right where uh so there's the same problem with low sample size there's the same problem with uh inappropriate statistics sorry i didn't means... follow
1: that last sentence it, it, it there's didn't a make lot sense of, to you yeah there's a lot of
0: sort of so psychology as in the scientific disciplines is one that has a lot more of an emphasis on uh criticism and going back and analyzing results and having other really? people come to it it is See, okay, okay, so, so this is
1: if that's what you're saying that's interesting to me because it feels like until very recently until very maybe like let's yeah. say last 10 years yeah. it's the opposite has been true where somebody would do something they would come to an interesting conclusion mm-hmm. and people wouldn't go back and interrogate that and try to reproduce it and, and criticize it if they weren't able to reproduce it it feels like the when they come to a really interesting sort of pop psychology conclusion
0: yeah it just sits and it's it stays there well, for like years that's the the question is for so pop si- psychology conclusions it depends on how much you're doing with it whether it sort of sits by itself as like an interesting fact or Mm. whether it spawns a field of research and people sort of go into it more right Mm. but there is this is just to say that there's also a lot of information to suggest that certain you know uh trials for medications and stuff in uh like biology and other fields has similar issues so one of the Uh, this is sort of a psych and biology combination, but there was a series of studies done on oxytocin, Mm -hmm. uh, and the way that they were being tested was, uh, nasal administration. Okay. And what came to light. So there was a bunch of studies that actually found results. They found that oxytocin and that's supposed to be, um, a hormone that is centered around like building connections with people and building relationships. And they found releasing breast milk. Yeah, and what they found later was that when uh, the science got more firmed up, they discovered that a nasal spray, uh, as a route of administration, could not deliver any significant amount of oxytocin to the bloodstream, so that it it practically was doing nothing. It was just, like, uh, essentially a placebo, and there was still this research that found results, and there's a bunch of reasons why this happens. Again, it's a big thing. Like, it's a really big problem. It's it's. There's been a huge amount of discussion. But what the bottom line is, is that people make a lot of mistakes. People do stuff without really understanding what it means a lot of the time.
1: Okay, but it shouldn't matter. Like, if we're taking that specific example, then if you're doing... Even if your underlying assumption is wrong, that your intervention even has a chance of making a difference because you're not absorbing it into the bloodstream, then... The results should either show a difference or no difference. Yeah, and if you're comparing it to a control group and it's randomized and it's placebo and your the size of your your sample is big enough, then you'll end up saying, "Oh, so inhaling uh, nasal spray oxytocin will make no difference."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So, and it's also possible then that there's an interaction that happens at a level that it does not involve serum levels that you could have. Um, if there is a difference, Mm -hmm. maybe it has to do with the nasal mucosa and that there's something, maybe it's going to be the olfactory nerve that triggers something to the brain.
0: Yeah. And so here's the thing though, when you go back and look at the research, it was that it was really small sample sizes. There was a bunch more studies that were being done and not published. And part of the thing is that if you're assuming, uh, that P level of 0.05, right? That's a 5%. 1 in 20 times, you're going to find a result that hits that threshold just by chance, right, even if right, there is no relationship. Right. And so there's all of these other factors that make it essentially significantly more likely. Uh, one of these things is called, like, p-hacking, where you mess around with how you analyze the data and other stuff, how you move outliers. Uh, and there was, like, another study where they had, like, a huge number of teams analyze the same data set mm. and they found that there was not a majority consensus on whether or not the results were significant. There was like different camps that found different results analyzing the same data set, just using but, st- different statistical methodology uh, I, and I feel analysis like that, techniques.
1: Yeah, but th- shouldn't that matter a lot less if you're, I mean, the, the next, really what you should be doing is using larger sample sizes, like rehashing the same data yeah. for a small sample where maybe you don't get all the raw data or you've got other stuff that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It feels a lot like navel gazing instead of taking a broader look and getting more people involved, maybe having a much more robust, um, uh, observation. Yeah because you're just looking at so many more people, or maybe you'll take that and it'll wash it out because
0: that was a small sample size and it was meaningless. Yeah, and that's what you should do, but that's not what happens, right? So one of the things is that you have to look at the ways that uh, the incentive structures are set up for publishing and replication studies and doing the same thing but with a larger sample size don't tend to get funding and they don't tend to get published, and so there's an incentive to do something new, be the first one to do it. Okay, but isn't that what we were saying? Isn't that what I just said
1: earlier about how it doesn't seem like there, there was a lot of motivation to go back and do those same yeah. studies?
0: Yeah. And so what's happened now is now there's a lot more of a push to do that. But the important bit is that all of that, what we're also talking about here is the process of science in the abstract, right? This is what you should be doing. What we know right now is that a lot of studies don't replicate, a lot of them um, are using stats wrong, a lot of them are, you know, there's all of these issues, and that's the issue when you talk about science, because when I'm talking about science and research, I'm not talking about the entire field, I'm not talking about an overview of all of the sort of balance of one side and the other, and you know, the follow-ups with larger samples and stuff, when I have access to that information, maybe that'll inform what I'm saying. But when you tell somebody about science and a topic, most often what you're telling them about is individual research studies, which you have not crunched the numbers on yourself, which sometimes you've read all the way through and done a critical analysis, but a lot of times you haven't. And so here's basically the the bottom line of what I'm trying to say for this is that it's oftentimes a lot more complicated there's a lot of room for error and the best and one of the only ways i think you can really confidently speak to a piece of research is if you've read it in its entirety the paper in its entirety and understood it yourself because even when the research is good uh there's a caveat of the way that the author has interpreted it which isn't always uh fair and isn't always the same conclusion that you would have come to uh, when you look past what you know feels like it should be objective—the data. So, like another thing is that there's this, um, there was this autism study, and the researchers were looking at empathy, and they were expecting the uh, autistic people to score lower on these empathy uh, scales. Mm-hmm. Uh, their hypothesis was basically that they would score lower on them. And that would show that, you know, uh, it was a deficit in autism. And then they found that uh, for the scales that they were using, that the autistic people were actually scoring higher on the empathy scales. And then they sort of reinterpreted.
1: Jig- they jig- jiggered uh, the scale so that it would score differently? No,
0: they didn't do that. They just, in their conclusion, they just reinterpreted it to say that the higher empathy was, like, non-adaptive or whatever, and that it was still in... Um, uh, so, but the, so, evidence so, of the deficit of autism. So, but then what they're saying is that the scale that they
1: picked wasn't a good one. That's all it really is. They can't come to another conclusion. Well,
0: it could mean one of many it, things. No,
1: no. But that's when, what what you're describing. Then is if they're saying that it didn't, then the scale that they chose as the measure didn't actually work for them to come to a different conclusion. It, it would require them to say that the scale wasn't good because the scale's telling them otherwise.
0: No, but they were saying that the that the higher score on the empathy scale was actually still indicative of a deficit, not a deficit in empathy. I forget exactly how they framed it, but it was that it was still an issue, that it was a problem that they were scoring higher on this empathy scale, that they were, like, over-empathetic and, like, uh, in the somehow wrong way compared to neurotypical people.
1: Right, but so this is the issue, right? Because if you want it to be more than just a qualitative study, people, they pick those things, right? Like mm-hmm. Whether it's, like, a, a pain scale... Or an empathy scale, yeah. or a depression scale score, or whatever mm-hmm. you're looking for an objective, reproducible way. If yeah. they're taking the information they're getting from that yeah. and rejecting it outright, so the, the conclusion directly from that should be their empathy is higher. Yeah, they've got more empathy, yeah. and they reject that conclusion. It's a criticism of the scale, like because they've got their preconceived notions of what there is. They're using their own judgment. Of what they're seeing in their sample size to say, "Hey, our conclusion's still right. The scale we picked is wrong."
0: Yeah, but they're the so the interesting thing is they're not saying that the scale is wrong. They're just reinterpreting the results to support their original.
1: Right. They may not be explicitly saying the scale is wrong in order to come to a different conclusion and to reject the findings of that scale, the objective number that they get from that. That's what they're literally doing, even if they're not
0: saying it. But they're, they're not saying that they're lower in empathy. They're just reinterpreting it to say that it's, it's a weird version of empathy. Basically, the main conclusion, it turns out that the main piece of information they were coming into it and the main assumption they were making was that it's better to be neurotypical than autistic. And they were just restructuring the results to say, well, the score that the neurotypical people got was the one that's good. And that doesn't have to be a rejection of the scale. It's just, a well it does if the scale is the higher is better like unless they say that some score in the middle like
1: it's not like but they BMI. weren't saying that higher
0: was better that's what mm-hmm. i'm saying they scored higher
1: i, I well, don't there's more empathy like yeah. they're saying, uh, uh, separate from function so uh, so here's an example so but are you are BMI, you
0: assuming that more empathy is better no i'm saying that their original point was that there was a deficit of empathy their original hypothesis, not their original point,
1: or the original hypothesis. Yeah. So yeah, but that, that's a the point they're sticking to. There's th- a deficit of something functional,
0: and the thing that they've measured called empathy with this particular scale. They're rejecting no, that but they're, they're, that they're not they're saying that it's a deficit of something functional. They're saying that uh, having autism is a deficit based off of the scores. They're not saying that there's a deficit in a quantifiable thing. It's not that. But- that is the quantifiable. Like the, the fact that they chose a
1: scale, t- they're trying to make something qualitative quantifiable.
0: Yeah.
1: Like so, some things, for example, like blood pressure, mm-hmm. it's supposed to be a J J curve, more morbidity. So that there's a number that's sort of ideal. Mm-hmm. Too low is bad, yeah. and you're gonna die. And then too high so is also bad. bad. Um, yeah. I think BMI is supposed to be like that too, mm-hmm. but not accurately. So like not really. But that a really high BMI is bad, but so is a really low BMI. So until, but that's a specific kind of idea that there's a J curve. So if they don't, if they're not going with that, like if they're just taking this measurement and they're using the scale and they're generating numbers with it, then in order to come to a different conclusion, they have to take something that they've assumed at the beginning and thrown
0: it out the window.
1: Like, it, 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 it's still, like, it doesn't really make sense to me.
0: Yeah, there's, j- there's just not an internal consistency of the way it's being interpreted. And that's what I'm saying, right? You re if you actually read the paper, if you look at the abstract, you go, okay, well, this is what the results are. And then when you read the paper, I think you're trying to sort of force uh, a level of logic on the paper itself, where that's sort of my point, is that it doesn't make a lot of sense. And there's a lot of research. uh published research that when you really dig into it it doesn't make a lot of sense and there's a point where your sort of personal understanding of it breaks down a little bit right hmm. and so uh, all i can say is this is not injustice. <laughs> this is not injustice <laughs> at all so maybe we'll move on but my uh point is that individual studies are not as reliable as you think they are and a lot of the way that we talk about science and even the way that and i you say about you science, mean like people in general not
1: like us having this specific conversation
0: yeah uh, people in general. and it was me, and it still is me, I think when I, I and when I talk about research, I have that tendency to talk about individual studies and results like it's information that people have figured out and it's yeah. fixed. Uh, and so it's it's really hard to talk about science. And uh, the other thing that it sort of made me realize, which I think is a lot more positive, which is that science, uh, when you have a big sample size, right? People like to talk about how anecdote, how an individual person's experience is not research, right? It's just a single example. Well,
1: sort of, I mean, technically it's not high level research, but anecdote is a low level research. What you're doing is case studies. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, But, and there's a lot of people who will be dismissive of a group of people talking about their own personal experiences because... And they'll go like, Oh well, you know, like where's the research, right? Where there's a uh, group of people will come and talk to you about something, they'll say, Here's an issue that we have and they go, I don't see any studies, right? But that's a starting point. That's how you start studies,
1: when you have individual cases that yeah. seem interesting and that's a motivation to do to look at larger sample sizes and see if that is actually something reproducible yeah
0: and so the kind of positive thing that i've realized is that if you have a group of people and they don't even need to be the biggest group of people but if you have a lot of people all coming towards uh coming forward and saying here's an issue that i have uh in a lot of cases that's about as good (laughs) as the research that's out there so i think it's uh my one of my biggest takeaways from studying psychology uh is devaluing a little bit uh individual pieces of research and sort of having a better understanding of the value of groups of people talking about their own lived experiences and obviously you know when people talk there's not a comparison point people have lived one life you know they've only had their own personal experiences but a big group of people coming forward and telling you something uh in a lot of cases is going to be pretty comparable (laughs) with a lot of the research that's out there unfortunately yeah
1: I see. I I'm, I I guess I'm struggling a little bit with that because I think maybe I'm coming at it from a non-psychology point of view. I, I think there's different problems with other kinds of research. There's a Twitter sort of response that I like, which is I can't remember what the account's called, but the name is something like in mice. Yeah. So the the level that I see when we're talking about say pharmacological interventions, I think mm-hmm. the that kind of study is more important because it's the nature of what you're studying. Yeah. But the 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 bigger failure in that kind of research is that they don't wait for human studies at a higher level to get excited Mm -hmm. and that there's a, the, the motivation in that kind of sort of pop science is to push any interesting idea, no matter
0: what stage you are at for, having something useful yeah they'll be like they cured cancer in mice right you know by doing something that would almost certainly not be possible to do in humans right. didn't they like there was something weird where they like cured cancer by giving mice like hiv i don't know or something i mean there's just so much
1: going on it's like when anybody has some sort of new concept this is why you have trouble with paradigm shifts is because everybody wants to be the one that makes that shift and to present something but there are so many thousands of ideas. Most of them are crap, which is why when there is something that is really new, mm-hmm. it is so astonishing and earth shattering and big mm-hmm. because there's literally thousands of ideas that end up in the garbage because they are garbage. Yeah.
0: So there we go. That was that was a big old discussion about uh, research and psychology. Mm. But our first Injustice question comes from Cameron107. They say, I could be wrong, but as far as Injustice is concerned, the idea of having lower promotion characters to improve matchmaking actually started with you guys when you showcased your Elite 5 Flashpoint team. I don't think I saw anyone in the community try something like that before you two. I don't know if this is what inspired the Scopos build, but the idea has definitely existed before. This is talking about the unbalanced Scopos um, build from previous uh, Q&A. They say, what I find interesting, though, is that fighting game developers in general have tried to avoid these kinds of strategies existing in their games since the late 90s. I don't know if you guys have heard of the King of Fighters games, but they were the first to introduce the 3v3 team format that most fighting games follow today. Well, in King of Fighters 99, they introduced a new model where you could choose anywhere from 1 to 4 characters in a team, and the game would balance your team's power level accordingly. But this turned out to be a nightmare from a game design perspective, and they had to reverse their decision the next year. The only teams that were viable uh, were single-character teams, because in a 1v4 match, the game would make one character as strong as the other four to balance it out. So you would just solo through all the offline content of the game with one character, and online was a mess because teams didn't even exist finding games in general have tried to avoid this uh sort of thing like the plague ever since injustice mobile is honestly the only relatively new game i can think of that you cheese the matchmaking (laughs) system in a similar way and the Scopus build reminds me so much of king of fighters 99 because it's basically a single character team but with two teammates that might as well not exist outside their passives so this is really cool i really like this comment and
1: it makes me think of a bunch of different things actually Um, one is, it's not just fighting games. So if you look at Pokemon. Yeah. One of the things that they do to avoid this is that, and actually, in in Justice 2, and in a lot of games, is that the amount of progress that you need to make, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that you, or so the the amount of experience you need to make progress
0: Mm -hmm.
1: increases hugely. So it's harder for you to have an unbalanced team where any given level in the game, mm-hmm. you can accumulate so much experience and power in one character that you can steamroll over everybody. Mm-hmm. So for the experience that you're wasting on one character, you could be developing a team that's overall much better. Yeah. That's the first thing. So it's not just fighting games. But the second thing I think is that it seemed like and this is this is one of those times where maybe a study would be good mm-hmm. and not just our um, anecdata, but it felt like that the matchmaking used to be that the other team would be matched against the strongest character on your team. Mm -hmm. And it it really felt like that because I I know that this isn't the first time we've tried anything like this where there's an unbalanced team. But unbalanced teams used to be much more difficult to fight with. Because it could be a one versus four fight, fight, but your one would be no stronger than any of the four characters on the opponent's team and you'd be um, well, really, one versus three, and your other two slots would be sort of duds. Duds, yeah. Like, it would, you'd really need to be good with your one character mm-hmm. to, to,
0: to make a go of it. Yeah, but so I, I think the point about fighting games is really interesting because matchmaking is such a challenging thing. I mean, part of, um, that's a lot of games. So I've been playing some Valorant recently, right? Mm-hmm. And, they use what's called an MMR matchmaking rating uh, for determining who you get put up against. And it's a real sort of pull, right? To try to figure out how to balance people. And so this one versus four thing is talking more on the pure objective backend stats level, right? Of if you have a team of one, it's just stronger than uh, the same team Uh, Or then, like, somebody at the same skill level playing another team of four. But when you're playing in online, the other thing that you have to consider is how are you matching those two people, right? Are they the same skill level? And I think that that's kind of, in competitive multiplayer games, I think that's actually, like, the biggest thing, is figuring out how you put people up, because when you go into a game and you click online and you try to play a game, the question is how do you make it so that... You know, because in an ideal world, you put people up ag- against two teams, same skill up against each other. You're going to win about 50% of the time, lose about 50% of the time. Right. right. That's that's perfect. It's exactly 50-50 shot of winning or losing. Uh, but the other thing is within that, you also want to make games fun and close. Right? And I think every single competitive multiplayer game has struggled since day one to try to figure out the best way to match people up so that Games can be close, interesting, and fun. So, I think that's like See, one of the biggest things. So, maybe the, there needs to be a correction in matchmaking
1: because, so here's the thing. So, let's say for the sake of argument that passes are pretty similar, um, the s- skill level is pretty similar, mm-hmm. and that you don't take gear scores into account because you want to still motivate people. Mm-hmm. to get better gears because that would yeah. be kind of crappy. If the better gears just meant your fights were harder, yeah. you'd get no advantage. You'd be spending a bunch of time getting stuff mm-hmm. that would be useless except on offline fighting. Mm-hmm. So you know how you do it. If you've got somebody who's um elite seven, uh say level 40, mm-hmm. like a team of three of them, yeah. then you'd match them again. So each incremental level up, yeah, counts against you more like it counts not counts against you more but adds way more to your score Mm -hmm. so that you're less likely to be able to have one guy on your team and junk and have that one guy so far outclass the other one that you can totally steamroll the other team Mm. and i think that's the the fact that you're seeing any kind of success with a really unbalanced team means that that's not happening
0: that's true and i i mean i think part of it too is that it's hard when you're balancing in justice. I think they're fundamentally balancing for a different thing because it always is you playing versus the AI, right? Mm-hmm. It's essentially an offline mode where you're being matched up against. A team like, composition. You're not yeah. ma- matched up against a strategy.
1: You're matched up against the pre-fight strategy, which is the yeah. team composition. It's
0: It's a passive online mode. And it's one where you can consistently win, right? I think yeah. the their motivation is not to make it balanced because there's not a person on the other side who can be frustrated right. if they right. lose. Right. So it, I, I don't even know, you know, when, when I'm if I'm trying to think like an Injustice developer, what their actual goal is, right? I think their goal is to make the fights as fun for you. And I think fights tend to be more fun when you win them, right? So if I was the Injustice developer, I wouldn't even necessarily want to match stuff up based off of, you know, power level. I think that's one of the pieces of information that you have to account for. But I think just doing power level alone, I mean, we can see that there's like teams with a lot better synergy and there's always going to be hidden stats that are almost impossible to calculate. I don't even know how I'd go about doing sort of a balanced matchmaking system uh, if my goal was fun. Yeah, I would,
1: I would look at the, I'd have to look at some of the passives too, because there's some certain passives that are just good no matter what you do. And certain passives are good if you play them a certain way. Yeah. I think if anything, I would want to punish the teams where you sort of arbitrarily drop whoever in. And if there's a specific strategy to it, then they need to be able to benefit from it, so that there's sort of a, a big swing between playing it badly means the team is awful, playing it well means this team is great. Those are the best kind of teams yeah. that you want to reward and make it so that they actually encourage people to be thinking while they're playing the game and thinking when they're planning how to set it up. But then,
0: how do you even reward that? Do you reward by scoring by, them a
1: certain way? So let's by say by giving them more battle points, or no, I would reward them by saying that the matchmaking means that. So let's say. I guess if if you think there's a range for how good they are, so yeah, the starting point to me would be stats, and if there's a range for how good this team would be, yeah, find an objective way to measure it, score it according to the wor- the a bad way of playing it and a good way of playing it, yeah, and then set it up so that so let's say for example you've got a um a Batman Ninja team,
0: yeah,
1: and Catwoman's in first slot, and mm-hmm. you've got two Batman Ninja team uh, teammates in in reserve, yeah. I would score that team a little bit higher than a team that had Batman, Ninja, Catwoman in reserve. Yeah, because her teammates could get knocked out before she actually comes in, and they won't be able to save her. Although that maybe That's the upside so is complicated. So maybe the problem and then so is when you should, say yeah, score they, them
0: higher. What's the actual matchmaking? Are you matching it against it? Easier teams, harder teams. No, I'm matching them against equal teams
1: as a starting point. So then it still escalates after that because it makes it harder to finish your ultimate ladder. Although you know that's maybe not the greatest example because so then that I, still don't, in, I still I still don't know, understand how are you rewarding them? What you're rewarding them by not making their fights harder. So there's if there's a way that you can score them, like in, in, I guess if you're gonna do like a. What's that score called um, that was an Injustice to Threat level. Threat level.
0: That It's not one fixed threat level. It's a range. So, okay. But here's... I, I literally don't understand. So when you say not making their fights harder, you're saying making their fights not scale up as you go through the ladder? No. no, no. Or are you saying so making you, their fights So you're easier, you're matching or? them
1: against uh, either the average or something below average. So if there's c- certain teams... So you're saying like, making no, their no, fights no, easier? No, no, no. The, there's certain teams mm-hmm. that have less of a range. Doesn't matter which order you tag them in, which mm-hmm. order they, they come in on the team. And, and the Catwoman example is probably not a great one because her passive actually benefits her from tagging in. So mm-hmm. scratch that, something else. Um, but that there's certain ways to, if you want to assess a team, that you put them up against somebody who's not at the top of the scale against them. Yeah. But right in, in the middle of the range. Yeah. So that way, when you play them better, you have an advantage. And
0: then when you play them poorly, it'll feel like you're really struggling against them. Mm -hmm. And so you're saying that a team that is sort of, doesn't matter how you play them as much, is going to be fighting enemies closer to the top of that range? Potentially.
1: Yeah, so there's going to be, like, there's, there's a variability in terms of how you play them and how good they are. Then you'd be facing something that has the potential to be so much better than you.
0: Yeah, I'm not even sure how, how that works. I'm not sure how, how that worked. I'm picturing what are Yeah, you're I mean, I'm just making about. stuff as we go
1: along because I was yeah. thinking of this question sort of in the back of my head as we were doing it because it wasn't, that wasn't the part that I was thinking of. It's that, like, what actually occurred to me, the first part was that when, when Cameron was saying that we were the, we, we started doing this whole sub-maximal teams. And I think it, it probably wasn't true, but we, we probably, we might have popularized it at best because we had the platform for it. And a lot of times there is a motivation, especially when you start, right? When you, there was such a long time period in the game where max was 40 and five, elite five, mm-hmm. that people were just busy maxing things out. And when you just had the increase, the next step was maxing everything out before people had a chance to realize, okay, so maybe this is a problem if in a world of Astro Harness yeah. where Astro Harness really slows down the fight.
0: Yeah, I think it really hit when the level caps and the elite caps were being raised at the same time as a bunch of characters were being released, and then you had a million things going on, like gear, and your your credits were split so many different ways, that it really made us take a step back and go, okay, where does it actually make sense to funnel resources here? Right. And what does it mean to, you know, upgrade your gear? What does it mean to upgrade your characters? And just like we've been talking about with the matchmaking, right, the fact that gear don't seem to influence matchmaking at all made it a really sort of easy choice to push for gear first because mm-hmm. we already had from previous updates you yeah. know a lot of characters pretty well maxed out we we crunched numbers and said okay well it makes a lot of sense to put more stats into gear and then we realized after a certain point that there was really diminishing rewards for putting more resources into upgrading your elite level and your character level and after a certain point it didn't make things any easier it didn't help yeah. you in any tangible way yeah.
1: All right, so let me refine the idea I was talking about earlier. So if you've got, to me, if you've got one, a team that's unbalanced, one really strong, two kind of weak. Yeah. The threat level is going to be pretty flat in terms of the range. You play it well, play it poorly. It's all about the same threat level. Mm -hmm. Okay? Then the the team that you're matched up against is going to be a team that has, that bottoms out at your threat level. And if it's played well, we'll have a, a much higher threat level. Than your team. Yeah.
0: So that there's a range so that it bottoms out at where you are. When officially. you say played well, though, the AI always plays it pretty much the same way. Well, okay, so maybe playing is the wrong
1: word then. That it's strategized well. So that means that if you... Again, let me try to think of an example where tagging... Because tagging has a lot to do with gear. Yeah. So let's say, to me, a, a threat... A high-threat level team is a, a character that has, say, Hawkgirl in it. hmm And characters that have passives Mm -hmm. that rely on, uh, tagging in. Yeah. And so there's a huge potential. I guess the problem is really that gears are such a big part of it. And I know I said that, I want gears not to count encourage you to, to get gear, but yeah, I think you, need actually, to. you almost need to.
0: Yeah, so we're sort of even trying to figure out how we would balance this game, how we would do anything to the matchmaking. It's not. It's, it's simple, so granular, and it's so... Yeah, yeah. It would be impossible to implement that, and so it makes a lot of sense why uh, games sort of do their best approximation but yeah. then go, I don't know. And, and especially, like we've mentioned before, in a game like Injustice, it doesn't matter nearly as much because there's not a person on the other side. But yeah. I can understand why matchmaking is such a huge and challenging uh, element of of any online game. Because I honestly, I, I can't even imagine the amount of numbers you'd have to crunch to try to make the maximum percentage of games feel fair and even and close especially in like uh, like a first-person shooter or something like that, where there's just like so many factors, where it feels like it's impossible to get any sort of read. I don't even know how they do an approximation of a good job in the first place. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: I think they've done a really good job overall, considering how long it's been around and how much I still enjoy playing it. They've yeah. done a really good job. Mm-hmm. It's so much better than a lot of those um, pay-to-win games. That there's still so much playability. And if you're watching this, and I've done this properly, what you're watching is an Earth 2 Flash team that is not the one we played before. That is really kind of interesting and is pretty darn effective, surprisingly, given that it's not a full Earth 2 Flash team. It no longer is Killer Frost, but we're taking advantage of Hawkgirl.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So there we go. I think this probably brings us to the end. We've, we've been a lot of places. I feel like this episode's been a little more <laughs> scattered and and there's been a lot of idea generation happening, but hopefully uh, people can get something worthwhile out of it. But uh, to finish up, I'd like to say some thanks to some folks. I'd like to give a shout-out to Eliza. Ah, Katen. That's me yelling. Uh, this shout-out was brought to you by a 2009 Shack tweet about Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, if you haven't seen it already, you should look it up. It's pretty good. We'll link it in the description. Yeah. Uh, and we'd also like to give a huge thank you to all the lovely folks who supported us on Patreon.
1: And that would be Bumble Ben, Consul Peasant, and Ed Woon at the top tier Last Word, Cinemac and Muhammad Al Shady at the Your Message Here tier, Sean Farrell, Daniel Simonson, Aaron Mall, Michael DeVries, Brandon C., Irvin Louise, Eddie Du, and Hoshi127 supporting us at the credited level. Chris Wolf, Scarlet Danny, Awesome Gamer 2 for 1, Pavu R.S., Gavin Mallott, and Nisfar E at the gratitude level. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time. Komoda. Komoda.